welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today's show, uh, in today's show, you're going to experience the butterfly effect of human history with an author of a book called Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, 39 Tiny Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. And my guest is Jared Knott. And I think this uh, concept is really a, a fascinating one. And I noticed that um, Jared, when I was looking up your book on Amazon, I noticed that it's a revised edition. I mean, I would imagine that there are so many tiny blunders that keep going on in the world that you have to keep adding to your list. But why don't we start with um, what got you interested in writing a book like that to begin with? Yes, um, it was uh, an old thing from Benjamin Franklin that for one of the nail, the shoe was lost, one of the shoe the writer was lost, one of the writer, the battle was lost, one of the battle, the empire was lost, the empire was lost, all for one of a nail. That's a nice old saying, but how often does that really happen, that a single tiny mistake caused an entire empire to collapse? 39 times, <laughs> actually it's much more than that. I'm working on the uh, uh, sequel, which has another 30 some odd examples on top of that. So it's just a, a, a history is just full of all kinds of goof ups and mistakes and blunders that had horrible, horrible consequences at the end. Okay, and but what made you, um, I mean, I could see where you would fall. I love Benjamin Franklin too. Um, yeah. I actually, when I was a kid, I actually memorized the book that you might be familiar with, um, Ben and Me, about a little mouse. Oh yeah, Walt Disney made it into a, a, a cartoon short, uh -huh, yes. Uh -huh. but, but so, okay, but what, so what made you, why did that, um, particularly speak to you, though, that concept? Yes, I was wondering, I was saying, well, okay, how often it really happened? I thought of one example, then another example, another example, another example, and then after a while, I got eight or ten years, that's enough for a magazine article. <laughs> they just kept growing and growing and growing. Well, guys, this is enough for a, a small book, then a huh. size book, then a big book. It's just amazing how often uh, at the beginning of a, a row of dominoes is a tiny mistake. One tumbles to the next, the next, the next, and there's catastrophe at the end. Oh, well, that, okay. That's, so what did you start with? Which yeah, the very first idea I had, it's been now, gosh, over 12 years ago, was the, well, here's the teaser for it. Uh, a single a piece of tape rotated several inches the wrong direction, changed the outcome of the Vietnam War which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What in the world are we talking about? Well, right. it has to do with the Watergate break-in. And when the burglars uh, jimmied the lock from the parking garage into the office building, they were told to hold the striker in the door down with a single piece of tape in the vertical position. They made a mistake and then put it in the horizontal position. Mm -hmm. So when the night watchman came walking down the hall, he could see the tape on the door, tape on the door. We said, oh, well, the door has been jimmied. Calls the Washington, D.C. police. Uh, I suppose they had to call them twice. Anyway, so they come out, they call, they send out, they call for a uniformed police officer who's on duty at that, that particular time to come out to investigate. But rumor has it, he was intoxicated in a yeah. local bar and could not make it. So instead, they sent the bum patrol, three officers dressed as hobos, 
in a jalopy car. They pull up in front of the Watergate complex. The lookout does not recognize them as police officers. They go in, they arrest James McCord and the Cuban operatives, and Watergate begins. Boom, 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 boom. But anyway, Henry Costa. Wait, wait, wait. They, the, the, they, they don't recognize them as police operatives. And so what did they do? Well, they, they, they're able to come into the building without the lookout calling to say, get out of there, here comes the police. If you've been a uniformed officer, they say, oh, here comes the police. So anyway, Henry Kissinger gave an interview uh, way back when, and he said the plan was uh, when the North Vietnamese began to test the treaty, the plan was to go in and bomb the living daylights out of them again to get them back in compliance. But they were so weak politically they couldn't. South Vietnam collapses, Nixon administration collapses, it all falls apart because of a single piece of tape rotated several inches in the wrong huh. direction and a drunk cop. Huh. That's very interesting. <laughs> so how come that didn't come out? Like, how did that come out? How did people discover that? I mean, how come it didn't get discovered soon enough to still go ahead with things? Well, they, uh, if you look at the movie, the old movie, All the President's Men, they actually show that movie and the uh, person playing the night watchman is the tape on the door recreated I'm sure and there it is and they kind of explain how it happened so it's always there a lot of these particular incidents are in history but they just kind of get buried among the emphasis on the big event and the small event that triggered it sometimes gets forgotten uh-huh huh that makes sense okay and then what? What did you come across next? I mean, well, let me just, well, so when you, um, so I guess that was one of the stories that went into the magazine article. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I, I never did, it's funny, I never did write the magazine article, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What the heck is <laughs> the whole book? And it's a big, good-sized book, it's 430 pages. Oh, wow. I, mean, I say 39 mistakes, really, it's about 43 or 44 stories who actually uh, deliver a little more than what we promised. Uh-huh, okay. Um, so, so, okay, of course I want to hear a lot more, but so what kind of reactions have you been getting to these? I mean, like, as you were writing the book, you probably talked to your friends or various people about some of these things because they're very interesting, right? So what kind of reactions were you getting from people who you were telling about it? Yeah, so one of my uh, very recent uh, review, I'm happy to say we sold over 20,000 copies of the book, which is very unusual. And we uh, sold about 19,300 of the book itself and another 11,200 of the audio book. Anyway, I've gotten out 2,469 reviews. Like, I'm very blessed for that. One, wow. of my favorite, one of my favorite reviews came through just a few days ago. It's from this lady. She says, I had a friend who was being incarcerated, and so I sent him a book because I wanted him to have something to read. He really enjoyed the book, and he passed it around on a number of the other prisoners. They really enjoyed it, too. <laughs> and so I just want you to know, you know, what, what a, a, a popular book it is. Of course, maybe people who are in prison uh, kind of wonder, maybe have a special interest in that particular subject. <laughs> I don't know. But no, it's been, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, yeah, most history books, and they're excellent, excellent books out there, are straight drilled down on a particular subject. If it's uh, talking about uh, World War II and North Africa, okay, or Eisenhower, whatever it is. But this, my view, takes history kind of turns it sideways, looks yeah. at it in a completely different context. And so and I've uh, response I'm happy to say it's been uh, very positive. But, but like, okay, but like in your, um, 
not from reviews, but people that you know, like as you were writing this book mm-hmm. and you started to discovering more and more of these amazing stories and you would presumably talk to people, your friends or, or just various people that you know, what kind of reactions did they have? Yes, uh, it would vary, of course. Uh, about a third of the people would say, well, no, that's like the butterfly effect, isn't it? And I said, well, yes. In fact, I talk about the butterfly effect in the book, and it was kind of an interesting story itself. But uh, Professor Lorenz, who was the gentleman's name, he was a very distinguished uh, mathematician. They do not give a, no- a Nobel Prize for mathematics, but if they did, he would have won it. He won it equivalent. And back in the 1950s, he was running a, a computer model program uh, predicting the weather, okay? They had this number, it was a decimal with 18 small numbers behind it. It's taken a long, long time for computers back then to okay, complete the, uh, the calculation, which he was 18 numbers. Let me just lob off about six of those, make it about 12, and then it, it'll run a lot faster. It can't make much difference just missing those 16 tiny, tiny numbers. But he was amazed at the huge difference that it made in the final outcome. And he said, uh, he was making his presentation to a group of mathematicians, and he was saying, and that would mean that a butterfly uh, flapping its wings in Brazil can set off a chain reaction that leads to a cyclone in Texas a year and a half later. A slight overstatement, but not that much. So that's where the, uh, the uh, phrase, the butterfly effect, uh, comes from. Yes. That's, that's true in history, and that's true of the prediction of the weather as well. Okay, so tell me. <laughs> so what did people tell you? You know, you're, oh. you're, sit- you're sitting at the dinner table. You're sitting at somewhere where there's, um, uh, like, well, I guess I should ask you, besides this book, what do you do? What kind of work do you do? Uh, yes, well, I'm retired now, but I do. Uh, I was in the sales and marketing for, for years. And when I talk to my friends, uh, they will say, that's a, just like you're saying here, that's interesting, it's fascinating. A lot of times the people who are interviewing me on the radio will ask what made you think of this thing in the first place. And that's kind of, uh, I have to go back to the origin of the idea, Benjamin Franklin, and then, uh, gee, how often does it really happen? It just kind of one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. Um, well, you know, um, the, actually, that reminds me, it would have been nice if I read your bio before we started. I'm asking you, what do you do besides this? Okay, Jared not has had numerous articles published in the Mensa Bulletin. Um, for anyone who doesn't know that, Mensa is a group for highly intelligent people. You have to have an IQ over 145. And in graduate school textbooks on subjects ranging from Supreme Court reform to Arctic exploration. He was a decorated combat infantry officer in Vietnam. Uh, no wonder you were particularly interested in the Vietnam story. Uh, in the 1st Air Cavalry Division. In his civilian career, he has served as a vice president of sales and marketing and marketing director in the home improvement industry. A father of five, he lives in the Atlanta area with his wife, Catherine. Very, very interesting. Um, okay, so, uh, so boy, you must have been, um, when you were working in sales, had you already started writing this book or that was after you retired? Yeah, it began about 11 years ago and I had... Uh, Five children, no, about 12 years ago, I have about, uh, had five children at home. And I had a, a wife that needs attention and I was working 60 hours a week. So it took me about 11 years uh, to write the book to begin with. But yeah. we finally got it written. Now I'm retired, 95% retired. And so I think I can write the second book much, much faster. Well, uh, so did you talk to your people? Like, you know, people in sales have a great gift of gab. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
So I would imagine that this might have been a good, um, you know, good conversation when you're trying to like get friendly with someone you're trying to sell something to. Yeah, it's funny. Now, the very first professional person that I discussed the idea with is uh, was a gentleman named uh, Alan Sugarman. Okay, and he was uh, uh, it was the first time I tried the idea out, and he was uh, very positive. How, how interesting it was. That's a real page turn, and so on and so forth. So that early encouragement kind of got the ball uh, rolling. And then uh, Nancy Grace actually had us on her show uh, once just for about 15 or 20 seconds, but she was also interested in the early beginning, the early, it was just the early stages. And so it was an encouragement from professional uh, people, which kind of makes you think, well, I'm not crazy. There is something here. And mm-hmm. it grows and grows and grows. I think, you know, way back with Atlanta, we know about the history of Coca-Cola. In the, in the early days when the film putting together, they say, you know, I think we really have something here. You know? uh-huh, <laughs> so uh-huh. it just seemed like this is really uh, substantial and fascinating, interesting, and even educational. So, okay, so tell us some more of the stories. Okay, here's a, another one, a, um, um, a single document, poorly designed by one single clerk in one single county, changed the outcome of a presidential election and led directly to a major war. The war would not have taken place except for this single tiny mistake, which what in the world we're we talking about there. Well, it had to do with the, the 2000 election down in Florida. It was not the hanging chads. It was something different. A lady yeah. in Palm Beach County, she was a clerk of elections. She wanted to make the print larger so that the people down there in the Palm Beach County, the older people, could read the ballots easily. So yeah. she made this butterfly ballot, different context for, ballot, for butterfly, but it was a, a ballot with two pages a left page and a right page with a series of punch holes down the center. Uh, Al Gore's name was the number two name on the left page. He was the number three punch hole. Okay. There were two punch hole belonged to Pat Buchanan on the right page. And it's clear that uh, the surrounding counties, Pat Buchanan got like a hundred, 150 votes, something like that. And this one county gets like four or 5,000 votes. And oh, himself, wow. so it, it was very clear that the, uh, that the people were punching the wrong hole. And sometimes people would punch his hole and then punch, go back and punch Al Gore's hole, which just uh, uh, invalidated the entire ballot. But it was like yes. he's, uh, Al Gore lost the state of Florida by like 456 votes. It's clear he would have won by three or four or 5,000 votes. Yeah, he, that would have been enough for him to win the presidency. He would have been president of the United States. He was adamantly, adamantly opposed to the war in Iraq. Uh, and the war would not have taken place except for that single uh, tiny oh. mistake. And they okay, had so- it. Go ahead. Well, well, so, well, two questions. One is, so how do, you, how do you discover these things? Like, how did you find out about that? Yes, I, uh, I tell people that my mind is a, uh, a trash bin of trivia, okay? Now, I may, <laughs> may forget where I put my keys, but I can remember what I, things I read 40 and 50 years ago. And yeah. I can cross-reference them and say, well, that's another example. That's another example. Okay. And you start to uh, accumulate these things one after the other until I got a great bunch of them and start to sort it out and, and go from there. So... How did you find? But but how did you find out about this? What you just described this uh, discrepancy in the ballot? Yeah, because, I remember. Because if, if if this is was known, wouldn't they have done something closer to the election? To you know, they were counting the chads forever. So how come they didn't you know figure this out? They did go in front of the judge, and the judge said this. The judge it was a Republican judge or what kind of judge? He ruled against them. No, no, no. Uh, a reasonable person would have, should have been able to tell which hole to punch. The fact that five or six thousand out of whatever it was, one hundred twenty thousand, were a little off the beam, 
that's not going to be enough to change the outcome. Now, if it had been a different judge, uh, or serious, serious, it may have come out a different ruling, but it was ruled against them in the initial uh, trip to court. That, that's really interesting. Yes, and it was, it was uh, and, it, and they had a nice lady, I won't say her name, but she's a very intelligent, nice lady. They had her on one of the talk shows, uh, Good Morning America, one of those, and they were saying to her, people are saying that you're responsible for this war. And yeah. she was uh, in tears, just crying, and so on and so forth. Oh, wow. Yes, which I understand. Uh, but um, then, uh, of course, we have, uh, appreciate the fact you're crying. We have 50,000 dead people and $2 trillion down the drain, except for that single tiny mistake. Of course, the President of the United States, George Bush, has the primary responsibility, but the little mistake would be her responsibility. Huh. That is so sad for her to have to go through life yeah. uh, feeling yes. that weight, you know? Yes. All of us have made mistakes worse than that, but we didn't make it that right criminal. <laughs> sent the whole world in a different direction. Um, you know, of course, it's so interesting that uh, after that, you know, now the 2020 election um, is in question, or at least for some people, it's in question, <laughs> and mm -hmm. as it should be, really. And yet they're ignoring all kinds of things, you know, whereas um, I think when that happened, it was a slightly less cynical time. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, my, my take on the 2020 election, just my opinion, other people disagree, uh, it was not technically stolen, but there was a lot of what you might call abuses with uh, vote harvesting, voter, uh, voter harvesting, uh, uh, ballots being printed and sent out like junk mail, so on and so forth. People going door to door to collect the ballots. People going to nursing homes, going to churches, collecting the ballots. So mm -hmm. there was it's a new way of electionary, a new way of voting. And a lot of us don't like it, but we have no choice but to. That's the way the game is going to be played going forward. We have to get good at that very thing if we're going to win future elections. Yes, yes, and we have to get better at uh, you know not letting them put cardboards up on the window to prevent people from watching what's going on. Mm -hmm. All right, tell us another one. Is there anything, <laughs> any mistake with a psychiatrist or anything psychological? <laughs> no, I can't think of any. Uh, uh, buddy. Psychiatrists don't make mistakes. <laughs> don't make mistakes. I guess so. But uh, um, just one of the ones I'll pick out is the, uh, uh, well, okay. Here's what I'll give you one. This is a, uh, a helmet is actually kicked off of a wall. Okay. And that leads directly to an empire collapse. One mistake. William Park, what in the world, right? <laughs> Every one of these things, what in the world? What are we talking about? Right. How is that possible? Well, it has to go way back in ancient times, and there was a, uh, a leader, uh, Cyrus the Great. He's mentioned in the Bible, mentioned very favorably in the Bible. He's the one that gave uh, your people, that gave the uh, children of Israel the freedom from uh, Babylon, okay, from, uh, yeah, from the uh, Persian Empire. But uh, he was the founder of the Persian Empire. And he was coming in conflict with the leader of Lydia, uh, Emperor of Lydia, a man named Croesus, uh, best known for the old expression, richest Croesus. The two empires were moving toward the great collision. Uh, and Croesus wanted to see if he was going to win. So he sent a representative of his, maybe more than one, to the Oracle of Delphi. And they wanted to know who was going to win the battle or not. So he, and he splashed around a whole bunch of gold there, like gold, a lot of silver, a lot of gifts. That's where he gets his uh, reputation of being uh, richest Croesus hoping that he might turn the prediction in his favor. And the oracle was a woman came down and said that a great battle will be fought and a great empire will be lost. And somehow he took it to me, maybe they tried to communicate this to him that he was going to be the winner, the other people were going to lose their empire. So anyway, 
battle begins. Croesus has the Spartans on his side. Uh, so the fight and the battle is fought pretty much to a standstill. And Cyrus then takes his men, puts it back on the ships, turns and sails away. Okay, well, okay, we won the battle. Okay, the Spartans, they can leave and they can go home. So then after about a week or so, they didn't claim Cyrus the Great for nothing. He turns his ships around and comes back again once again. Once again, what? I'm sorry, that kind of got muddled. Once again, what happened? They engage in the battle again. And uh, this time he wins and then Croesus takes his, all of his troops and then pulls it back up to this fortress on Sardos, this great big giant fortress up on a high mountain. Okay, well, winter is coming. Cyrus does not have enough uh, food to support his army through the winter. Maybe the Spartans are going to be coming back. Uh, he may have gotten himself into a real box here. Actually, knocks the helmet off the top of the wall. He comes tumbling all the way down to the bottom. The soldier gets off the wall and goes down a secret wall pathway all the way down to the bottom, gets his helmet, and walks all the way back up to the top. And uh, Cyrus's men say, whoa, whoa, look, 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 look. There's a secret pathway up the side of this giant wall. So the next night, a raiding party climbs up that same pathway, goes over the top of the wall, goes over, forces the gates open. Cyrus's men are waiting to come flooding into the city, and they defeat uh, Croesus for all of his money. <laughs> and that's the end of uh, the Lydian Empire. Huh. So if it had not been for that tiny mistake, instead of being called Cyrus the Great, he might have been called Cyrus the Chomp. <laughs> Very interesting. So, but, but I, I'm still having, it's, it's like amazing that you know all these different stories. Like, did you search through history books? Like, how did you find that story, for example? Yeah, that one I just remembered, having read it 20 some odd years ago. Uh, again, I can, I've been long-term memory. I can remember all these things. It's kind of stick like black paper. And some of them, of course, came from research, more recent research. One or two or three have come from suggestions from other people. And so you start looking for something you're going to start to find it and start to accumulate more and more. Uh-huh. It's just that it's interesting that these aren't well-known um, facts, you know, aren't well-known stories, um, which is why your book <laughs> is so popular because no one really knows these things. Um, okay. What about the one, a man fails to gather his army in time to defend against an attack because of the temptation of opium and a young slave woman. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, well, it has to do with, I'm from Texas, uh, with the uh, battle for Texas independence. And uh, what happened way, way back to 1835, uh, Santa Ana okay, uh, took over command. He was already president, but he decided to take over the entire government of the uh, nation of uh, Mexico. And he uh, canceled the Constitution, canceled the democracy, and became the generalissimo uh, of the entire country. Well, there were seven states of Mexico rebellion rose up in all seven states and he went around uh, for two years with great cruelty crushing the rebellion in each of the seven states uh, the six states and then finally the only one left was the norte americanos up there in texas so he crosses the rio grande with about seven or eight thousand men and then goes first and uh, destroys the alamo then he destroys the san jacinto and then he starts destroying the settlers and uh, all those around him now i say in the book i call this uh, victory disease in the texas frontier so you'd won one battle after another battle after another battle after another battle. And history tends to show when people uh, win so easily, it starts to get the impression that 
uh, I can't lose. It starts to be kind of sloppy and kind of, and kind of uh, disorganized. The army left is a group of about 700 men, more of a mob than it is an army led by a man called uh, Sam Houston. Okay. Uh, and so uh, he has uh, an interesting thing that's read in the National Geographic, and it said that uh, all revolutions have loud, noisy, violent men mixed into them, but Texas was overrun by such men. So anyway, he has these men who say, we need to turn and fight Santa Ana. We can take him on, but Stanton, Sam Houston, man of great judgment. Our, men are, our numbers are so few, we can't make any mistakes. We have to be very, very careful. And they kept calling him, you're a coward. You won't turn and fight. And even uh, his political rival, uh, David Burnett, sent him a letter, sir, the enemy is laughing at scorn, laughing at scorn, you must fight. And he just took the message and crumpled up and put it in his pocket. And he had a uh, uh, near, near mutiny, and he had two graves dug, posted with a notice that these graves will be filled by the bodies of mutineers. So anyway, so uh, he uh, keeps evading and evading and evading, and he gets himself in a particular area where there's water on three sides in Santa Ana, uh, just kind of stumbles into this area without really thinking what he's doing very much, and he has himself trapped on uh, water on three sides. From intercepted dispatch, Sam Houston uh, sees what's happening. Said, "With this, I'm going to have I have a monkey up a tree. Here's my chance to win." So anyway, uh, and so skirmishing before, and then all the men were saying, "We must attack before dawn. We must attack before dawn." But he slept late that morning, refused to attack. And they were coming to him, "Why won't you attack? Why won't you attack?" I, I, no, no, it's, the time's not right. So anyway, one of his key men, this guy, the kid, told the whole story, and named Hockley, came to him, General, why don't you tell the men what your plans are? Why don't we go ahead and attack? And he said, I grant you that if we had attacked this morning at dawn, we would have won, probably, but with heavy losses. This is <laughs> very important. Um, when I attack, we will lose less than a dozen men, and victory is assured. Mm. What? What were they talking? What kind of guy? So anyway, three thirty in the afternoon, without any prior warning, he calls the army into battle formation. Okay, he was marching into battle. They play an old song, a love song, uh, maybe the only song that the fiddler knew that the flower uh, knew. Come to my bower and lie down with me. Come to my bower, shaded by the tree, and there in the roses and lilacs will lie. You'll have a blush on your cheek, but a smile in your eye. So anyway, uh, surprise is this is complete. Okay, it's a complete route. The battle lasts 18 minutes. He ends up losing like nine men and not a dozen men. So I have a, you have a very intelligent audience, and I have a question uh, for the audience. Okay, I'm sure they'll get it. Okay, why did he choose to attack at 3.30 in the afternoon? Okay, what was going on with the Mexican army right at 3.30 in the afternoon? And the answer is CS. Okay. I was just going to say that. You didn't let me. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I so, 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 so get ready to say that. Yes, right. He had Good intelligence, a good reason to believe that right in the middle of the siesta period, security just fell down to nothing in the Mexican army. Uh, they had their women there with them. They were shaving, they were washing, they were drink, sleeping, they were drinking. And so he attacked them right at the middle of the time, and it was, it was a complete rout. He never would say to people what the reason was and what, what makes an officer after the battle. How did you, how were you able to defeat the Mexican army so easily? And he would, smart politician that he was, he said, bring me an ear of corn. Okay, bring it to how can you have men who are willing to subsist on nothing but raw corn? They want liberty so much and freedom so much. They're willing to fight and live on nothing but raw corn. Men like that can't be defeated fighting for freedom. In other words, he gave credit to his troops, okay, because he's going to be running for president. <laughs> I think that's about it pretty soon. So he never did it, but we admit, because 
that the war is not over with. It could be that that same issue would come up by siesta again. So he just kind of kept it quiet all of his all of his days. But that was that was the that was the reason. So, I was thinking it was either a siesta or um, wanting to have the sun be in a certain position where when the Mexicans would come over, it would be in their eyes. Very good point. That's exactly right. Because the sun was, in fact, in their eyes at 3 3 in the afternoon, the position that he was in. That's one of the, that was the other major reason why he chose to attack at 3 30 in that particular position. Exactly right. Okay. Um, what else? Let's see. What's another story? You can ask it. You can ask me one of my favorite ones if you want. <laughs> In fact, you might uh, well, question Well, tell us, my, tell us what one of your favorite ones is. Well, yes, and also, um, if you ask, um, what tiny mistake is having the biggest impact on a, a daily basis today? It has to do with a mistake made by Woodrow Wilson in the formulation of the 1919 Versailles Treaty, which, of course, was a very formative event because the whole world was really reorganized and changed based on the Versailles Treaty. Uh, the uh, Allies, of course, had won, defeated the Germans, and the everyone who was on the Allied camp wanted a slice of the spoils. They wanted a slice of the rewards of victory. The Chinese had sent 100,000 workers uh, to, uh, to France to dig trenches. They had get done their part. They expected to be treated with respect. The Japanese had defeated the Germans on the uh, Pacific, and they uh, expected uh, their share of the spoils also. The Japanese wanted two things. They wanted to be able to take a control of the German concessions in China. There were parts of China sliced up, and foreign powers, uh, France and England, and as well as uh, Germany, took control of a particular area of, uh, of China. They wanted that, that control passed to them since they defeated the, the, the Germans. They also wanted, this is very important, they also wanted a statement of ethnic equality, that all people of the world should be treated with equal rights regardless of their ethnic background. Well, to us in the 21st century, that sounds like nothing, but it was a big issue back then. Down in Australia, there was a prime minister, his name was Tony Hughes, very irascible, uh, difficult to get along with a prime minister, and he was very much opposed to that uh, statement being included in the Versailles Treaty. Australia, even to this day, thinks of itself as a white island floating in an Asian sea. They don't want a lot of workers coming in and taking jobs away from the Australians. So, so he was very much opposed to it. And then also the senators in the Western United States were opposed for the same reason. They did not want Asian immigration coming in and taking jobs away from their voters in, in California and Washington and, and Oregon. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, so Woodrow Wilson in the end uh, tells the, uh, because the, he's going to need the votes of those senators to try to get his League of Nation bill passed, which he failed anyway, and that's what he's going for. So he said to, uh, I said to the Japanese, we cannot give you the statement of equality that you're asking for. But as a sop for that, we're going to let you have the Chinese concessions for the Chinese mainland. Okay, well, uh, uh, big mistake, big mistake. It's announced on May 3rd that that's going to be the case. Okay, uh, May 4th, now famous, uh, May 4th, there's riots all over, protests all over China. Okay, that's the beginning of the May 4th movement which later becomes a communist movement. And one uh, Chinese nationalist said, we had believed in Woodrow Wilson and the Western democracies, and then we decided they were all great liars. So anyway, they reject Woodrow Wilson, rejected a Western democracy, and coming out of Russia at that time was another philosophy. It was called communism. 
So they end up embracing communism, rejecting Western democracies. Uh, Mao Zedong takes over the May 4th movement. It takes a number of years, but it ends up going communist. And here we are today with a communist China, yeah. if that mistake had not taken place. Okay. Yeah. There's a very serious chance that uh, India is a, is a democracy, Japan's a democracy, South Korea's a democracy, very good chance that China could have a democracy also. Huh. Wow. That is really interesting yes. and unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Um, too bad we can't go back and change it. Yes. 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 What other, I was going to ask you about that. What other, what are some of the things in more modern times that are mistakes that are affecting us? Uh, let's see. I've got uh, mentioned two of those already. Well, here's one. You could, uh, you could make a pretty good argument that the South might have won the war, which would, have, of course, have enormous impact on, in today's world, except for one of the most peculiar of all the tiny mistakes. Okay. And let me set the stage there. The uh, uh, South, of course, was badly outnumbered by the North. The North had uh, railroads, they had industry, they had cannon factories, etc. And so the South was very outnumbered, but they were determined uh, to win. Uh, so anyway, um, the, uh, uh, the South was not doing well at the beginning of the war. Uh, the uh, Peninsula Campaign had begun, and, uh, uh, and they had uh, soldiers. They come within five miles of Richmond. Looked like they were about to uh, take Richmond and win the war early on in 1862. About that time, uh, when General was killed, and Robert E. Lee was appointed to take his place as head of the, of the entire uh, army in Virginia, Northern Virginia. Okay, and he won four uh, battles in a row: one, two, three, four, and really threw the Union army uh, way back, way, way all the way back uh, to Washington. Uh, it was in, in defeat. They were in uh, confusion. And it looked like a tide was going in the direction of the south. So here's the important thing. Way across the pond, over in England, uh, England and France were going through a cotton famine. They had these big uh, weaving industries, and they needed cotton for their textile mills, where they were just sitting idle. It was causing a horrible, horrible depression in both of those countries. And France was already ready to go ahead and, and uh, grant recognition uh, to the south, England did not like the slavery, so it was kind of, kind of on the fence, although they were giving it serious consideration. But one more victory, big victory by the South, might have been a very serious chance to have been enough for Great Britain to have recognized uh, the South. Why is that so important? Uh, because they would have broken the blockade. British ships could sail into Charleston Harbor and the other harbors if they had been challenged by Union shipping, that's an act of war against Great Britain. And of course, Lincoln could have, couldn't afford to have war against Great Britain with his giant navy. Uh, so as if they had grand recognition, that would have forced Lincoln into a negotiated peace and the South would have won the war. Okay, so with that in mind, Robert Lee crosses the Potomac with 39,000 men. The idea is to win a major victory in Maryland in the North and uh, force the uh, Union uh, into a negotiated peace. Um, He's, uh, he, he was explaining his strategy to a particular general, his name is General Walker, one of his generals. He said, sir, that's amazing to cross over into Maryland with the enemy at your rear. Isn't that extremely dangerous? And he said, are you familiar with General Meade? He is a good soldier. And I meant McMillan, General Mac, McMillan. But he is a good soldier, but he is a very cautious one. He's just lost four battles. He thinks that he is not going to be ready for another another battle, or he thinks or he will think he'll be ready for at least three or four weeks. By that time, I plan to be on the Susquehanna, threatening Philadelphia, 
or Baltimore or, uh, or New York, I mean, or Washington, D.C., as suits our purpose. So anyway, so it crosses. Okay, things are going well in the beginning. And here comes one of the most peculiar tiny mistakes of all time. Uh, order of 191, okay? Uh, copies that were made and sent out to the various generals, okay? Someone takes order 191, wraps it around three cigars, and stuffs it in an envelope. One uh, a careless Confederate officer drops the envelope on the ground, okay? The campground in Maryland, and off they go marching on, on to the farther north. Three days later, Union troops are there in that same campground, puts this here on the ground, uh, three cigars, Order 191, uh, authorized by Robert E. Lee, they give it to their captain, he passes it up to his colonel, to his major colonel, and to the generals, they get the orders in front of them, and they see this is realistic, this is his plan, and it's a very dangerous plan, very risky plan, he has his uh, army stretched out over 30 miles, uh, I think we won't find them, and they're marching to the north, again, they give it to uh, the, uh, the Union generals review it, and they say that uh, if uh, I can't defeat Bobby Lee, in this situation, it's time for them to send me home. Well, but then a spy got word to Robert Lee that the Union uh, had uh, knowledge of, of his orders, so he calls out his troops and has them come back in and concentrate again. And then it led to the biggest battle of the Civil War and the biggest battles in American history, 21,000 casualties on one, on one day the Battle of Antietam Creek. And afterwards, Robert Lee is able to cross back over the Potomac, and the war is not over. But a couple of uh, mistakes that could work and go right there. But also, they're going the other way, and the, uh, and the Great Britain might have recognized uh, the South and maybe a whole different outcome. And so, yeah. an odd one in a million chance that the envelope was picked up by Union troops and led to a huge reversal of fortunes. Huh. <laughs> Very interesting. What about, would you say today, looking at, again at, at uh, mistakes today? What about the leak from the Wuhan lab? Well, in fact, that just started a former sentence. I was thinking that very one. I have a chapter in this next book uh, coming out, and it's about that the uh, uh, in the last hundred years, two of the biggest developments in the entire medical field both came as a result of mistakes in the laboratory. One was very, very good. The other was very, very bad. Uh, the first one was uh, uh, Dr. Alexander Fleming, okay, at St. Mary's Hospital in London, 1928. And he was known for keeping a kind of a messy lab. And so he was getting ready to go on uh, vacation in Scotland for two weeks. So he takes his, uh, his dishes, Petri dishes, all smeared with bacteria. He puts them in the sink, just leaves them there. And so he's going to clean them up when he gets back. Well, off he goes to Scotland. Two weeks later, he comes back. And there's mold. And there's a mold. What is this? What? <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle of the petri dish, and of course, it's killing all the bacteria around the clear area all the way around it. And there's bacteria killing properties inside penicillin mold. <laughs> a few times in history, there's been more of an epiphany than that. What they not only did it lead to the discovery of penicillin as a medicine, but the entire field of antibiotics was created because of that one mistake. It has saved, as you know, tens of millions of lives since then. It was 1942 before it was able to be produced in a mass quantity uh, uh, for use in the field, but uh, just in, in the early parts of World War II and saved millions and millions of lives, saved tens of millions of lives since then. The other mistake, of course, is the Wuhan lab, uh, which is, uh, there's still not even, some people don't still want to agree that the mistake came from, came from a mistake in the Wuhan lab. 
It almost certainly did. The evidence is piling up. The FBI says so. The Energy Department says so. That's led to the death of over 10 million people. Both mistakes coming from a mistake in the laboratory with the disasters. Uh-huh. You know, of course, the question is, was it really a mistake? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good point. There's some people who say that it was deliberate. It's just hard for me to get my head around. I mean, it deliberately release it as kind of germ warfare and killing millions of people. It's just I, some people say so. I, it's hard for me to accept. I believe that it was on purpose. I believe that, especially the more we get to see about the plans of China. Yes. It, I, it, I, may I, have been, it may have been. Of course, it worked at their well, – sorry, I was going to say, it worked. It, that probably led to the defeat of Donald Trump in the election because he was uh, doing very, very well. The strongest economy the world had ever seen is rolling along. Here came the, uh, the yeah. pandemic. He just kind of upended everything. He probably wouldn't be president of the United States now except for the United yes. States. Or maybe been a deliberate act of sabotage. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, what else from today? Uh, in recent times, do you think uh, might be considered a, a little yes. butterfly effect? Well, there's a, no. I, Excuse me? Well, we go back, I go back uh, uh, more and more. I keep going back uh, farther and farther as you kind of started with the early ones and have been uh, going uh, back there. Um, with the, uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of mistakes that are being made now that, uh, uh, of course, that we have, we were not well prepared for the Ukraine. It's possible that the entire war could have been avoided if we had not, uh, uh, if we'd been better prepared, had the Ukrainians uh, uh, better armed than they, than they were. That would discourage a uh, war in, in the first place. Uh, but there's a, here's, here's, I'm holding my book here. Here's the, uh, 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 here's the uh, cover right here. But another one that makes a big uh, difference is the, um, I think it's called the unopened letter that saved America. And it was uh, had to do with the Battle of Trenton, okay? And Washington, of course, the United States, the portions at that point were just down to nothing. We had been kicked out of New York. We were being defeated right and left. We desperately, desperately needed a victory of some kind, just a psychological lift. So uh, General George Washington put together the attack on Trenton on Christmas morning against the Hessian troops, very, very cold, bitterly, bitterly cold. And he uh, uh, was marching on them, and it was about 2,000 men. And word was sent to Colonel Rall, who was a German colonel in charge of Hessian troops. Uh, it was uh, sent that uh, uh, a, a warning that George Washington was coming that night. He'd already been told by, they think it was a John Honeyman, or not to worry about the cloud busters, they're not going to come. They're so knocked down in the, in the dirt. There's not anything they're going to be able to do. But he took this warning letter. It was a, a Tory's uh, party, Christmas party, and knocked on the door. Uh, this is a letter for Colonel Rawl. He gave the letter to Colonel Rawl. He took it and put it in his breast pocket. Okay? And he was playing chess, and he was playing cards, and he was drinking wine and having a good time. Okay, so in the middle of the night, here comes the attack. Okay. And uh, it was a one-sided affair. The Americans didn't lose any uh, men in the actual conflict. They had two or three that died from a frostbite, but they overwhelmed the Hessians and they went and then Colonel Rall is shot through the chest and they had him down the ground and they get in bed trying to treat him. And they cut open his, uh, his jacket and the letter falls out of his breast pocket. And they open up and read it and they said, it's a, it's a warning that, that George Washington's coming tonight. And he said, oh. uh, if I had read this, uh, I wouldn't be here now. And so he died shortly thereafter that 
and, and he had to die feeling stupid, which is the worst way to die. <laughs> he, can't, he can't die feeling smart. No, no, he had to die feeling stupid, which is a bad way to regret, go. Regrets as you're laying there. Oh, that's awful. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's, uh, that was uh, kind of a – and it, had, it hadn't been – you could make the argument that the uh, United States might not have won except for that, uh, except for that mistake. So uh, let's see. Uh, well, here's a uh, – uh, well, let's see. I, I got a whole bunch of them here. Uh, uh, well, there's the uh, Kennedy and, and Chappaquiddick affair. They have a uh, Hitler, the uh, Hitler, the unkillable. It's amazing how close he came to death uh, so many times. And one of the times was this: the German generals had their conspiracy against Hitler. Uh, they're trying very hard to kill him. He knew that a lot of people hated him completely, and he was uh, very evil man, but a very clever man. And one thing he was doing, he kept a very unpredictable schedule. He said the reason that assassinations have been popular and successful in the past is that they know where the target's going to be at a particular time and a particular place. Well, so he was, uh, kept, he didn't know where he was going to be at any one time during the day. So they were able to get him, to lure him, the German generals, to Russia for a view of the overall plans, okay? They get him there, and they have the big conference, so on and so forth. And as he's leaving, okay, uh, uh, one of the generals has a bottle of, like a bottle of cognac, a bottle of liquor. He said, uh, gave someone to explain, take this general so-and-so back in Berlin. Okay, very good. It's like a gift box, that sort of thing. But it was not a gift box. It had an explosive charge in it. It pulled uh, the triggering device, okay? And the teaser for this particular one is a single uh, device, Four inches long, failed to, man, 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 failed to function, and that changed the outcome of World War II. Well, okay, so he gets on the plane, the plane flies off. You can imagine the tension there on the ground, walking back and forth, thinking about 45 minutes later, the plane's going to explode. But three or four hours later, it landed in, uh, in Berlin with that incident. Oh, gosh, what happened? Now we got this box there. Somebody opens it and see it's not a bottle of liquor. We're in big trouble. They're able to get it back and, then, and uh, examine it. The little device just failed and malfunction. But if it, if it function correctly, it would have been blown up in the plane, and uh, the war would have ended a good year earlier, and hundreds of thousands of lives would have been changed, and the map of Europe would be different. It would not have uh, changed the outcome of the war, but it would, end, so it would change the, uh, the date when it ended uh, a year earlier, and uh, 100,000 yeah. lives saved, and the map of Europe would be different. So now, um, and I'm just getting a signal, we have four minutes till the end of the show. Um, but now do you think after compiling all these things and still compiling them, do you think that these things were, um, just coincidences or accidents, or do you think maybe there's a bigger, uh, something bigger going on in the universe that these things were, were, they seem like accidents, but really they were on purpose that the, an unknowing being or unknowing the universe um, is making these things happen. Well, yeah, I kind of bring up that subject uh, in the uh, in Tatum Creek and saying the chance of an envelope like that with yours being found on a campground like that, one in a million. And maybe it's not just the quirky nature of human mistakes. Maybe it's the hand of God that flipped the switch uh, the other way. I'm not qualified to answer uh, that question. It's almost a predestination question. I don't know uh, the answer, but it could be it's all part of God's plan 
And uh, maybe when we get to heaven or if we get, if we make it there, I know I probably said, I don't know, no one knows for sure if there's a heaven or not, but if there is, I sure hope the hell I get there. So but the, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll find out uh, someday you on know, the other, other side. They'll say to you when you get there, which I hope will be a long time from now, but when you get there, they'll say, you see, you thought these were accidents or coincidences. <laughs> I do all right. the time. That's right. Because they were planning the board all, all along, all along. Yes, that's it. Well, well, let me, since we only have a couple of minutes, I want to tell people again the name of your the book. Well, first of all, the name of my guest, who I want to thank very much, is Jared Knott. And the name of the book um, is called Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, 39 Tiny Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. And he is continuing to write more, so there will be more than 39 mistakes. Well, this was really uh, fascinating. I'm you could go to, I mean, rough, but you could go to uh, tinyblundersbigdisasters.com, tinyblundersbigdisasters.com. We have a great website there. We have two and a half free pages. We also have a, a book trailer. We have the uh, poetry gallery. It has 27 personalities uh, with a little bit of dirt on each one. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Okay. <laughs> again, that was, say it again, Big uh, tinyblundersbigdisasters.com. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. So much. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Very fascinating stuff. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 